Hi, everyone, and welcome to our true crime podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Elle. And this, this is, is Depraved. Depraved. Hey, everyone, welcome back to episode eight. Uh, today's episode, I was looking for something to watch on uh, Prime. And instead of finding something to watch for us to be able to watch something, I end up finding another case for us to do that I've never heard on any other podcasts. And I don't know about you, but... I've never heard of this case at all until you brought it to my attention and we started digging a little deeper. It was actually a pretty inter interesting case, but I will warn you from the start, it it's kind of... It's brutal. Gnarly. It involves a lot of um, crimes against children. If that is something where you draw the line at, feel free to skip this episode. We will not hold it against you. Not one bit, because I know I was watching the episode. It was on uh, Prime, and I was getting extremely irritated the whole time because of what was going on. It it's Yeah, it's a bit rough, but... Something we decided to dig a little deeper into and see what we could come up with. So, that's about yeah. our trigger warning for this episode. We did find out, though, there is a movie out about this. We haven't watched it yet. We haven't watched it yet, but... When it's... Once we're done with this and we get this podcast out, we will maybe go look into it. We'll have to see. Just didn't want it to uh, skew our views on the actual facts of the case because obviously the movie is not going to be as yeah. accurate as possible. And yeah, it was just plain brutal and yeah, wrong in so many levels. So many levels. Anyways, I hope everyone is out there staying safe and healthy. Remember to wash your hands, stay home if all needed, if all necessary. Don't go out unless you absolutely have to. If you do have to go out, wear a face mask, y'all. It's not going to prevent you from getting it, but it'll prevent you from spreading it. So if everyone wears one, everyone's better off. And the quicker we all can get back to our normal lives, because I'm getting tired of seeing the four walls in this house. Yes, and the snow outside the window today. Yeah. Welcome to Ohio. <laughs> 70 the one week 60 the next week oh let's have snow <laughs> that's what we get for complaining that it was so nice outside and we couldn't go do anything i just find it funny how earlier this week i'm flying kites with the kids and now we're stuck in the house because there's freaking snow yeah, and it's not just regular snow either it's the wet heavy nasty crap and dense crap that yeah, it just... At least it didn't stick to the roads or sidewalks. Just it, it tried to. It tried. For a little bit. But it was mainly the grass. I'm okay with it being in the grass. Yeah. Anyway, we will get on with our episode now. <laughs> episode 8, The Saddleworth Moore Murders. We probably will not have as much joking in this episode, just because, again, it's really heavy. Um, so if you come for the jokes, leave now. <laughs> anyway. But you may hear me say a few words about these guys, so... And they're not going to be pleasant. Anyway. Our 
we'll get started with Ian Brady. Ian was born on January 2nd, 1938 in Glasgow, Scotland. He was born to Peggy Stewart. She was a single mother and just couldn't afford proper child care and often left him alone for very long periods of time while she worked as a waitress. So the thing I'm getting with this is he was a newborn and he was being left alone while she went to work. A typical work day, at least here now, is eight hours. At least. So if that was the time she was leaving this newborn alone, not saying it excuses anything he does later, but what kind of effect did that have psychologically when you oh, need to be nurtured? Wouldn't you want to imagine how much it's doing to this kid's mind? Anyway, this was going on until he was about four months old. At that point in time, she gave him to another family to raise. She never formally gave him up for adoption. It was more just like a, here you go, you have him, you raise him. And she would go and visit him frequently, but she never told him she was his mother. So he was being raised by this other family, calling them mom and dad, and his mother was coming to visit him. As a young teenager, he started developing this complete fascination with the Nazi party. Oh, yay. Nazis. And, yeah, what a great thing to be fascinated by. Yeah, not so much. And shortly after this, he kind of sort of became like an outsider, but by choice, like it was his own doing. And he was later described by schoolmates as an oddball, a loner, and just strange. Shortly thereafter, he started committing petty crimes like burglary. And at this point is when his adoptive family decided they had just, they had, had enough. enough. And they returned him to his mother. He was 16 at this time when they returned him to his mother. And as far as I can tell, up until this point, he had never been told this lady was even his mother. So he's about ready to have a big shock brought to him. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just seconds. like, oh, by the way, we're not your real parents. She is, and you're going to go live with her and her new husband. Bye. <laughs> so he goes to live with his mother and his stepfather, Patrick Brady. Trying to please his stepfather at that time, Ian took his last name, where we get Ian Brady from. Okay. He never stopped his life of crime at this point, however, and also started to fantasize of further crimes like murder. But his descent into crime and burglary would land him in prison by the time he was just 17. He was released from prison in 1957 and then left and got a job as a stock clerk in a Manchester firm where he met then Myra Henley. She was there working as a secretary. After about a year, Brady asked Hindley on a date and took her to see the Nuremberg Trials. What a great first date. Oh, yeah. Anyways, he then began encouraging her to read the books that were written by Hitler, and she would very soon adopt his political views as her own. So to get more into Mira Hindley, she was born on July 23rd, 1942, to Bob and Nellie Hindley in Manchester, England. She was just a typical working class kid. She had a childhood like many others at the time. Her family was hard up for money, but this was not an uncommon occurrence at this time in this area. Yeah, I did see that in the, the thing that the document we were watching that pretty much this whole area was poor. Yeah. And like they were sharing bathrooms and 
it was just, it was common. That's what went on at this point in time. And they called it a ghetto where they lived. And yeah, like you said, they shared a common bathroom for several apartments. And all I know is if I had to share a bathroom with somebody else, man, I'm hoping and praying Bob's not in there taking forever taking a poop when I got to go. <laughs> just saying. I'm sure they had protocols for that. I hope so. Anyway, um, even though, like we said, she, you know, they were t- hard up for money, things like that. Um, her friends were in the same position. So it wasn't like she was an outsider or anything like that. She was just typical. Um, after witnessing the drowning death, though, of a close friend, she left school when she was 15 and went straight into the workforce. This is where she would meet Brady and would then set off this chain of events that would bring horror to the neighborhood. Yeah. Nightmares. So everything kind of gets rolling on about October 1st, 1965. At 6 a.m. in the morning, the police in Manchester got a call from 17-year-old David Smith saying he had witnessed a murder with an axe at 60 Waterbrook Avenue. The detectives, Bob Talbot and Ian Fairley, arrived at the scene and were told by David that the murderers were still inside the house with the body. Detective Bob Talbot, thinking on his feet, saw a bread man who was walking down the street. Um, from what I'm gathering, the bread men at this time were just basically like... Like a milk delivery guy? Yeah, like a milk delivery person, but it, with bread instead. It was probably very common to see him. Everyone knew... You saw this guy come up to your door. Yeah, it was not a big deal. Well, he asked the man to borrow his white coat and his basket, knowing that if he knocked on the door looking like a police officer, he wasn't going to get anyone to answer. Oh, yeah, it's going to send up all kinds of signals and everything else, and they're not going to do nothing like that. Exactly. Well, thankfully, the ruse worked, and he got Henley to answer the door. At this time, the men did identify themselves as detectives, and they entered their home. This is one thing that... I'm not sure if it's different country policies or maybe even the time, but... I'm going to say it was the time. They entered the home. It didn't say anything about search warrants. There probably couldn't have been time for search warrants because they were just told that something had happened here. But they entered the home, and at that point in time, they witnessed Ian Brady laying on a bed in pajamas, and they thought he had just been woken. So he's probably still half days. like, what the heck's going on here? Right. They informed the couple why they were there and began to a thorough search of the house. On the second floor, they came to a bedroom where the door was locked. At this point, they asked Henley to open the door. And she went on this rambling thing about this is where she kept her guns. She had no way to unlock the door. If she kept her guns there, why yeah, she unlock the door? I have no idea. But basically, Brady then interrupted and said, hey, give him the key, unlock the door. At this point in time, I'm pretty sure he just knew. He knew that they were screwed no matter what they did, and they'd just get it done over with. Might as well just give it up, yeah. Well, and I know they had also said, the police officers did, that they had threatened to break down the door. Yeah, they threatened to kick the door in yeah, if, needed, so if needed be. I think at that point, he's like, they're getting in there, whether we unlock it for them or not, might as well just unlock it. Yep. When they entered the room, they then found the body of 17-year-old Edward Evans. He was in the fetal position in a plastic bag. We 
this story, I'm warning you now, kind of jumps around a little bit. You'll understand why in the end it kind of has to, to... Make, make sense of everything going on. Yeah. Because I thought the same thing when we were watching the document. I'm like, why would you start with this and... Then go to this and go back. Yeah. But yeah. you'll get why it jumps around. David Smith, we find out, had been lured into the house in hopes that he would help with the murder. And then that um, Henley and Brady would then have someone to pin the crimes on if it did become necessary. So, it feels like they knew eventually they were going to be caught, and so they wanted to have someone to pin these crimes on. Now, why they chose David Smith is because they knew him. Because David Smith was actually married to Myra's sister, and they lived just a couple doors down. Nothing like getting your brother-in-law involved in something you don't need to have involved in. Yeah. So, later that day, Brady was arrested for the murder of... Evans and he went on to confess to the murder in full he didn't try to deny it anything they he told the police that the couple had gone to Central Station where Brady had met Evans and just convinced him to come back to the house for a drink this is what the 60s I'm sure it's not uncommon for yeah at this point in time there hadn't been all these horror stories on the news and stuff that we see today to make them more hesitant of going to a stranger's house for a drink or whatever. Right. When they got back to the house, um, this is when they called David Smith over. And they introduced Smith to Evans. And it didn't explain exactly how it was pulled off. But it does say that shortly thereafter, Brady walked behind Evans and just suddenly brought an axe down on his head. And then proceeded to strangle him to death. So he knocked him out with the axe. I, I thought it said something about he walked past him, like behind him, went down a hallway, and then came back out of the hallway, and that's when he struck him with the axe. That very well could be. And then, then he, he strangled him with like a power cord to finish up the job because it didn't It do, didn't kill yeah, him, it just knocked kill him, him out. Okay. Um... I do know that this whole time, Smith just sat there kind of shocked by what he was witnessing. Don't blame the guy. I'd be shocked, too. And it does say that he quickly returned home, and he told his wife about what had gone on. And they decided together that they needed to call the cops. So I'm assuming this was the night before, and he went back and talked to his wife, and they probably had a big discussion over it, would be That's my assumption. What I'm, I would gather. Because I would assume, at least from my thinking, you just told me my sister's boyfriend and my sister just did this. It's going to take some convincing to get me to believe it, first of all. And then we're going to have a discussion on what do we do right. before we decide to go to the cops. Because then they don't call the cops until 6 a.m. So it was probably at least a few hours later. I'm sure well, they had plus, a deep down discussion of what what was going on and how they were going to do everything. And Yes. They also said that they had time to clean up the scene because this occurred in the living room. Right. And yes. they had to clean up the blood and stuff afterwards. And then when they got there, it also says that Ian was sleeping. So it gave him time to clean up and for Ian to sleep. So, I like again, I would assume, I would it, was assume it was several hours later. Yeah. Anyways, um, once they discovered the body, they brought Smith in for questioning, obviously, and he was super cooperative. He just wanted to do anything in his power to help the detectives and figure out what he, was going on. 
While he was being interviewed, he told the police that the pair had told him they had committed other murders as well and told them of suitcases that Mira and Ian had mentioned that they kept all the evidence of the previous murders in and that they had taken it out of the house. The police were able to track down these suitcases at the train station where they had picked up Edward Evans and they were left in the lost luggage area. So basically... They take these suitcases out of the house because, again... Get the evidence out of the house of they, other stuff. They and... know they're going to be caught eventually. Um, and so they leave these suitcases at the train station where they pick up this guy to bring him back to kill him. Anyways, these suitcases were just jam-packed full of evidence. And, and they, they said they were heavy. Yeah. Like, extremely heavy. They would soon discover that they were responsible for the disappearance and deaths of several area youth. And now's the point where we're going to fast forward about 20 years to 1986. The pair had been in prison this entire time. However, it took them this long to just get any sort of confession from the pair. And this is what they found out. Again, trigger warning. This case involves crimes against very young children, and although we don't go too in-depth with what the children suffered through, it's still going to be disturbing. So, skip this one if you need to. So, we go on to Friday, July 12th, 1963, and this was the date their first victim, Pauline Reed, was abducted. Pauline was supposed to be going to a dance that night with a friend. Friends. Yeah, it sounds like just kind of a typical high school dance. Yeah, it sounds like a school dance they were going to or something like that. Yeah, and it said that even though she also lived in the ghetto, her parents had gone out and bought her a new dress and new shoes. This was a big deal for her. Well, at last minute, the friend that she was originally supposed to go with had to cancel. And her mom didn't want her to go to the dance because she didn't want her going along. However, Pauline assured her mother that there were a few other friends from the same area that were also going, and so she wouldn't be alone. Her mom reluctantly sent her off with a hug and a smile and had given her her favorite necklace to wear, which was a big deal. At the same time, Henley had borrowed a van, and the their plan, Henley and Brady's, were that she... Henley was going to drive the van and Brady was going to follow on his motorcycle behind her. And when he saw a person he liked, he'd flash his headlights, letting Mira know that this was their target. Right. As Pauline passed by on this night, Brady flashed his lights and Mira called her over to the van. Mira now, she knows Pauline. She grew up in the same neighborhood as her. And come to find out that Pauline was a neighbor of hers and her sister's. And Pauline was a friend of Mira's sister. So Mira obviously didn't, or not Mira, Pauline obviously didn't think much of Mira calling her over. She knew her. Right. She was just somebody I know. Yeah. So she walks over. Everything's kosher. Because they did say that if you weren't from the area, they, they wouldn't talk to you. Yeah, they'd... But if you were with somebody who was from the area, you're basically considered cool and ain't good, good enough to be talking to and be safe and... Yeah. 
Um, they also let her, later say that Mira had gone to Pauline's mother after her disappearance and had told her how sorry she was about what had happened to her daughter and which is just sick cool and sick and yeah. Seriously fucked up. Anyways, Pauline goes over to the van that Mira's in and Mira tells her that she had lost something in the nearby moor and whatever this thing was was very expensive and she needed to retrieve it and promised Pauline that if she went and helped her look for it that she would reward her for the efforts. I think she said she would give her like a new record or something of yeah, the sort. Yeah, like a record or some sort of what I, I gathered. Um obviously Pauline didn't think much of this and willingly got into the van and rode out to the moor. And this is where Mira would introduce her to Ian. Ian Brady then led Pauline out onto the moor and cut her throat and then called Henley over to show her his handiwork. This is where Henley noted that it appeared that Pauline had also been sexually assaulted as her clothes were pulled down and disheveled. The pair then quickly buried the body, loaded Brady's motorcycle into the back of the van and drove away. So this first one, maybe you can think that Mira Henley didn't know exactly what was going to happen to Pauline. But you'll start discovering more and more that she was a very willing participant in this oh, whole thing. Oh, yeah. On November 23rd in 1963, their second victim was John Kilbride. Now, Pauline, I didn't get the exact ages of everyone, and I should have, and I apologize for that. Now, Pauline, I believe, was in her late teens, 16, 17. I believe she was the oldest one out of all of them with what I was seeing. Yeah. Now, John, I believe, was around 12. He was yeah. quite a bit younger. His mother had reported that on the morning of November 23rd, John had been outside tormenting his siblings. This is very typical of siblings. I think she said that she had seven kids. Something like that. Yeah, we have four and we deal with this all the time. Sure. The older ones tormenting the younger ones, the younger ones tormenting the older ones. It happens. So on, so on. Yeah. <laughs> she told him at this point in time, just go to the cinema. Here's a few pennies. Go to the cinema. Leave your siblings alone. And she probably did this just to have some peace and quiet around the house. Like, I'm just done with it today. Just go. So he went to the cinema and then went to the market. He but, Okay, now before you get too far into this, his mom did pre-warn him of the Pauline. Yes, she did Sydney. say that at some point, I don't know if it was that day, but at some point It was that after, day when she was sending, sending him to the cinema. Yeah, she said that, you know, Pauline did, did disappear and whoever did this is nearby. Or at least a, within be. a train right away, I think right. is what she said. So, he went to the cinema and then went to the market that was right down the road from the cinema. He did a little bit of work around the market at this time just for, like, some extra pocket change. Um, he would basically bag groceries and then he would take the bags out to the cars like some places still do today and load them into the cars for people. Henley approached John while he was working at the market and asked him to load her boxes into the car. 
it's believed that because she was a woman, he didn't think much of this at all and just kind of goes along and gets into the vehicle with her. We don't know what she said to lure him into the vehicle. Maybe something along the lines of, well, if you go back to the house and unload them for me, I'll give you some extra money. Something. Who right. knows? But they somehow got him into the car. And he has driven out to the moor where Henley drops off John and Brady together. We find out that John is then abused and strangled. And Brady returns to the car with a shoe and a string. Now, they say a shoe and a string, but I'm wondering if they're not talking about the shoe lace itself. You know, I thought the same thing when they said that. Yeah. But um, he tells Mira what happened, that he had strangled the boy. But because of how long he was gone and how excited he seemed to be, Mira firmly believes that Brady had assaulted the, their victim again. Yeah, because... They were saying something about how he felt uh, excited, sexually, sexually aroused, aroused and then she was sexually aroused because he was aroused, and yeah, just a uh, messed up. Yeah, it, yeah, these are some really fucked up people. Anyways, this then we go on to June sixteenth, nineteen sixty four, and to their third victim, Keith Bennett. Keith Bennett was also a younger one. By the looks of his photos, I'd say he was probably between, like, 8 and 10, around in there. Right around there. Keith's mom was going off to play bingo with his sisters and had sent him to walk to his grandmother's house with a warning to behave for his grandmother. At this point in time in this neighborhood, I'm sure this was a very common occurrence. Go walk down to Grandma's. We'll be back later. And Grandma probably lived maybe... A, a couple a blocks, blocks away. If that. Yeah, and I'm sure this wasn't the first time he had done this either. Right. No one thought anything of it. And they said that this neighborhood was very safe because everyone looked out for everyone. And if you someone didn't know you, you were a stranger and everyone was kind of put on alert. The thing is, we find out that Henley was a part of this neighborhood. Everyone knew her. So she didn't raise any alarm bells when she and Brady were prowling the neighborhood looking for victims. At this time, Henley and Brady were both driving a pickup truck. Henley would drive the truck while Brady rode in the back looking for the next victim. And it was kind of agreed on that when he knocked on the cab, she would stop because he had seen their victim. So they see Keith Bennett walking along Gray Street by himself and he knocks on the cab. They convinced him to get into the truck by telling him they needed help moving some boxes back at the house. And... Again, told him he would get a reward if he helped. This seemed to be their thing. Come help me do this and I'll give you a reward. Yep. That is why we tell our kids all the time, no adult ever needs help from a child. Don't listen to them. Don't go to them. Uh, you know, that's a very big thing with people who try to lure children. It's, oh, I need your help. No adult should ever ask a child for help. Period. No, never. And our kids know that very well. Um, again, they drove Keith out to Saddleworth Moor, and, um, Henley later describes the victims by saying, they went like lambs to the slaughter. This time, Henley went along to be the, a lookout for Brady as he committed this crime. 
he killed Keith and took photos of his body and the photos were found in the suitcases and it was obvious by the photos he was sexually assaulted. Which tells me if it's obvious by some grainy black and white photos. It was straight out It obvious. was a very nasty assault if they knew this. Okay, now on to December 26th, 1964, which was Boxing Day. Which, Boxing Day, Canada! <laughs> which kind of comes into um, the reason why there was this fun fair going on. This was their fourth victim, Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie went to a nearby fun fair with a neighbor, and I'm assuming this fun fair was probably going on because of Boxing Day. While she was there... She saw a couple drop some shopping bags and the contents then fell out of the bags. This was Henley and Brady. Her, being the nice young girl that she is, went over and offered to help them pick up their spilt items and put them back in bags. At this point in time, again, the couple Lord offered her a reward, reward if she would help them carry the bags back to their car. She would never return home again. Um... They forced her into the car and blocked her in with boxes. This is the first time we hear about them forcing someone into a car. And they say they blocked her in with boxes so she couldn't reach the doors. So obviously, this little girl, some of the other victims went willingly with promise of a reward. I'm sure they didn't go willingly much after that. Mm. But this little girl did not go willingly. She probably had been talked to about the dangers and the other kids going missing that and they said there was audio. We'll get to that. They, this time they wouldn't drive her out to the moor. They drove her to their home on Wardle Brook Avenue. Where at this point in time, they turned on a tape recorder. And Brady also again wanted pictures of the girl. This is believed that. It's believed that they took her to the house this time instead of to the moor like the other victims because he wanted the pictures. And it was after dark when they abducted her. And obviously being the 60s, flashes weren't much of a thing. Even if they were, they weren't great. So they would not have been able to get the pictures that he wanted out on the moor. So they took her back to the house where they had light. That There's another part of the, the moor that I'll wait till later on they forced her once they were back at the house they forced her to undress and bound and gagged her and took pictures of her in different positions brady tells myra to go run a bath for the girl and when she returns she finds the girl bleeding with a rope around her neck However long it took her to run a bath was way too freaking long. If she's trying to say that all she did was went and ran a bath and came back and he had sexually assaulted her and killed her in that point period of time. I don't believe that's accurate. No. <laughs> and if you look online, I don't suggest it because I regretted doing it. I clicked on a link that had the transcript of the tape and I read a very, very little bit of it. And ended up clicking out because it describes things that Mira was telling Leslie to do to Brady. So, obviously, once they heard that tape, they knew Mira had more to do with this crime than what she was even confessing to 20 years later. 
Brady then carried her body to a bath and washed the blood off of her and they wrapped her body in a sheet and drove her out to the moor where they buried her body. Okay, now is where we're going to kind of bounce back again. Going back to earlier in the story when the police discovered those suitcases at the train station. They noticed that the name John Kilbride was written in one of the books that they found in the suitcases. They also found photos of a little girl tied up and gagged with scarves, as well as a tape of a little girl being tortured and abused. When police heard this tape, they just broke down in tears. They were talking about how none of them could stand it. One of the officers started crying when talking about it this many years later in the documentary. It had to have been horrible. The table that, was, they said they, they kept listening to hear some, some of the things that they couldn't hear and it just it get, yeah, kept, kept getting worse and worse as they were listening. And Yeah, because it was old audio, it was kind of garbled. So you had to listen to it several times to fully understand what was going on. The tape was only 16 minutes long, so it only detailed just a very few moments of this little girl's horror because I'm sure it went on for much longer than 16 minutes. This is the part that really got me as a mother is that the police played this tape for Leslie's mother to see if she could identify her voice. Yeah. She obviously was able to identify the voices of her daughter and told us in the documentary that all she can remember from the tape was her daughter screaming for her mummy. Um, and again, like I said, Henley was heard on this tape telling Leslie to be quiet and oftentimes to shut up and to do things to Brady. They, in the suitcase, would also discover photos of both Ian and Myra on the moor. This led police to then search the moor. But after weeks and weeks of combing this moor and they were using these bamboo sticks to prod down into the earth, they found nothing, no results of anything. So they decided they were just going to end the search. They all go back to the caravan. They're loading everyone up. And one of the officers decided that he was going to walk back onto the moor a little ways because he had to relieve himself before taking that ride back to the station. Yep, I remember. Um, As he walks back to go do this, he notices something white sticking out of the ground. Leans down to investigate and realizes it's a bone. Not knowing if this is an animal bone or what, he calls his colleagues back and they all load back out of the caravan and come to investigate. Well, they, they first gave him a little... Prodding of, like, yeah. Like, hey, okay, whatever, dude, we're told to go. And yeah, he and he kept... said, I am not leaving. If you want to go, go. But I'm staying here and I'm figuring this out. And that's when I think they all thought, okay, he's serious. We got to check this yep. out. That's when they do. Um, so all his colleagues come back to investigate and they just start gently moving the soil away from the area before long at all they discovered a piece of clothing so at that point is when they knew that it was a body of a human and not an animal they kept digging and revealed the grave of leslie who was buried no more than two feet again two feet deep and again this is where i feel they went horribly wrong they said that for some reason, where she was buried, half of the grave was in mud and the other half was up against some kind of stone. Yeah. And because of that, half of her body was pretty much fully decomposed, but the other half was very well preserved. Well, they called her mother and brought her to the moor 
and had her identify her half-decomposed daughter. Which, if I remember correctly, they did by clothing. No, because she said she didn't want to leave her daughter, and she kept stroking her hair, if you remember. I thought it was by the clothing. No. Other ones were by the clothing. Mm -hmm. They had her identify her body. That's right. I know I remember. There's just so many of them going on there. I just... Yeah, it, it does get confusing. At this point, neither Henley or Brady would talk. Um, we find out that this is because Brady wanted Henley to be just exonerated of everything. He was like, let me take the rap for this. Don't give her any time. And that's why they remained silent for 20 years. The investigation continued and they were able to link the headboard. This is, I found this kind of fascinating. Actually, they were able to link the headboard in the photos of the girl to the headboard at the home of Henley and Brady. They did this the same way you would compare fingerprints, basically, by, like, the points of comparison. Yeah, I seen that. That, that was, I would have never thought of something like that. I'm sure police do this kind of stuff all the time. We just don't know about it. But it was actually really neat how they were describing it. But they were able to tell by the marks on the headboard and the wall that not only was this the same bed, but it was the same room as well. So, obviously, this was done with their knowledge. They also found Mira's fingerprints on the photo of Leslie. So she obviously knew about this as well. Yep. After looking back on the photos that they had discovered of Henley and Brady at the moor in the suitcase, they realized that one of them was of the exact spot where they had discovered the grave of Leslie. So the, det the detectives set out to try to find the location of where all these other photographs were taken. Because there were several photographs of the two of them at the moor. Now, they kind of focused in on one photo in particular. And that was the photo of Mira kneeling on the ground, looking down at like a patch of disturbed ground while she was holding a puppy. So, they gave Detective Mike Masher the task to find this area. Now, from what I gathered... He was a detective, but maybe like an amateur photographer at the time. That's what I, because, I got from it, because they, they told him to bring his camera gear with him. Yeah. And also, it seems like they felt he knew them more and maybe had taken pictures out there before. That's what I, I get. Like, he's been out there quite a few times and took wild, like wildlife pictures or, or nature pictures of, of the something. Sort, because they felt that he might be able to recognize this photo because of the background. The background was kind of unique. And he was able to locate the spot. He knew where it was, and he took his camera out there and takes another photo of what he well, believes is the area. If I remember correctly, he found that this spot by pure dumb luck because he needed lifted up for something, like an, for a photo. And he just went to look around and went, wait a minute. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he was. I know he was able to find the spot. That's what I know. Um... But after looking at the two photos side by side, the photos, and they show it in this documentary, and I'll post the original photo as well on our page. Um, these photos were identical. The only thing missing in Mike's photo was Henley herself. And the puppy. 
And the puppy. Yes. But you could see between the two photos, they, they were the exact same spot. So they began the process of making sure that this was another grave like they had suspected. And they did this by using bamboo canes. Now, if you know anything about bamboo, you know that bamboo is hollow. So when you stick it into the ground, it is going to make a hollow hole in the ground. Yep. Well, they did this and they instantly recognized the smell of decomp rising from the hollow cane. And they knew they had came across another grave. They carefully started removing the earth and discovered the body of John Kilbride. They, this is where they brought his mother his clothing. They brought him his clothing and his shoes, her his clothing and his shoes to identify his body. Um, because that's what you do when the body is decomposed. You don't show a mourning mother the body of her decomposing child. Anyway. She was able to identify this clothing because she said she had altered all his clothing out of his father's old clothing. She yeah, said, because they were poor. And... and they didn't have much money, so she would take his father's old clothing when it had worn out and alter it down to fit him of the pieces that still worked and would put different patches and things on it of things he liked. So she knew right away. It was his. It, it was his. his. Yes, because when you spend that much time working on a piece of clothing like that, you are going to know the ins and outs. And most seamstresses can tell you too, especially when they sew by hand, their stitch is like their signature. They know exactly what it is. Um, We later find out that there were also tapes found of John Kilbride's murder, but they didn't really go into that as much as they did Leslie's tapes. On May 6th, 1966, a jury found both Ian Brady and Myra Henley guilty of murder and sentenced them to life imprisonment. It was very unusual at this time to give someone a life sentence in England without the possibility of some kind of a tariff or an early release. Um, Typically, they'd say life imprisonment um, with a tariff after 30 years or 45 years, 50 years, whatever. But they did also say that they just got rid of the death penalty penalty in that area. And the judge sentenced them to life, period. That was it. He said life's life. Yes. He did not give them any option for any kind of early release. Ian Brady was 28 at this time, and he was given his life sentence for the murder of Edward Evans, John Kilbride, and Leslie Ann Downey. Mira Henley, 23 at the time, was given a life sentence for the murders of Edward Evans and Leslie Ann Downey. And seven years for accessory after the fact for the murder of John Kilbride. Brady wanted Mira to be exonerated, like I had said earlier. And the pair kept quiet about the other two murders that, if you've noticed, were missing in their sentences. For 20 years, they held on to the secret. It was suspected by many in the neighborhood and the police, though, that they were responsible for these other two murders just because... It was the same neighborhood that they disappeared from around the same time. I think everyone pretty much knew. They They just just didn't have the the, the evidence to put it on them because they couldn't find the bodies. Exactly. And they wouldn't confess. Brady, 20 years later, like I said, would finally admit to an author researching the case that there had been these two other murders. He also admitted that Mira had helped him with all of these murders. 
Now, did we ever get the name of that that book that he wrote? I did not. So we're going to have to look that up. I will have to look that up. Yes. In November 1986, hearing about Brady's confession, another detective, one of the original detectives actually, went to visit Henley. At this point in time, she had just received a letter from Keith's mother begging her that if she knew anything about her son's murder or where her baby was buried, just please let her know. That's all she wants is to bring his body home. For some reason, Henley decided at this point in time to confess to all the murders to the detective and went into detail. How Wasn't it because she confessed more because she found out that he broke because of the author and she found out about it and it pissed her off? Well, yes and no. I think it was more because she thought that if she finally confessed and said, hey wait, this is what I did, I will confess, I will do everything I can to help you out. Maybe if I do this, she might get a, a you might sentence. give me parole. Yeah. I believe that is where her mind was. Um, The thing is, though, with her confess- confession, is she always painted herself as, like, this helpless bystander who was a force along to do this by Brady the hell she was but the thing is if you remember she was even on the tapes you heard her on the tapes telling leslie to do these things and you so obviously she wasn't well and in her confession was also where she said she went to run the bath and came back came back and she was bleeding and dead no that doesn't happen in the time it takes for you to go run a bath i'm sorry well she eventually agreed to return to the moor and try to point out the location of the other two bodies to police The first search was highly unsuccessful, but they said a lot of that was because media had came. Media got word of it, and they had a helicopter out. It was just just a Freaking her out. Um, So she was taken back to the prison without anything found out. By this time, Brady was talking more about the murders of Keith and Pauline, but he refused to discuss the, the murders that they had already been convicted for. So, the only confessions we have are that of Henley's. So, he never shared his side of the story for any of the murders that they were convicted for. Um, he, as well, would agree to return to the moor and lead detectives to the grave. But, again, nothing came from his visit. Which makes me wonder, he's a traditional serial killer. He was putting on more of a little horse and pony show. Yeah, I think, well, because they said he initially had all these demands that they, he wanted them to meet before he would go out there. And then finally he says he'll go out there. I think it was more to relive his crimes of going out there like he did with going back and taking the pictures of the graves. Yep. Than it was to lead them to anything. Well, I just think this being back in the whole area just yeah. made him relive everything. And he was, he was getting a jolly out of it. Yeah. He was pulling their chain and it worked. Um, eventually, though, Henley agreed to go back out to the moors yet again, and this time, with her help, they did find the grave of Pauline Reed. They said, this is what kind of shocked me, is that, you know, how we talked about how Leslie's body, half of it was very well preserved, and the other half wasn't. Well, with Pauline, her whole body was, they said, very well preserved, and even her clothes were in pristine condition. They said they looked brand new. Yeah, like her, her shoes had the, the gold lettering inside of them. That they looked brand new, like it just came right yeah. out of the shoebox. And... Um, 
her belongings were shown to her mother to identify her. And again, she was able to identify her by her clothes. And probably because she had just gone out and bought them for her for that dance. She had given her her favorite which necklace. we found out in the documentary that her mom was in the hospital at that time. Yes. Which, in a way, it's a good thing because if anything was going to happen, That's she was the there to get taken care of. Yeah. The sad thing is, though, that the body of Keith Bennett was never found. Even sadder yet is that Brady sent a letter to Keith's brother saying he would leave details on how to find his body in his will when he died. What? Yeah. So he's like basically tormenting this family. The thing is, though, when Brady died of cancer, he was 79 and died in 2017. He had two suitcases that were taken out of his hospital room. Now, he was technically in prison, but obviously he was moved to the hospital because he was at the end of his life. Um, these two suitcases were taken out of his room just days before he died and were given to his lawyer that was in charge of his will. His lawyer now refuses to release any information on what is inside those suitcases. So if there is any information on where Keith's body is... We're never going to know because the lawyer won't give it up. Yes. Now the case was brought in front of the judge by not only the family, but also the investigators that worked this crime. And the thing is, the judge said that he really couldn't issue any kind of a search warrant to force the lawyer's hand because he could only do that if there was an ability to prosecute. And they can't prosecute because Brady's dead. Right. Which, good rids. Yes. Now, Mira Henley also died in prison. Um, she died of a heart attack at the age of 60 years old in 2002. So, what, 10 years before Brady did? Yeah. So, at least they're both dead now. Right. Good riddance. And I That's hope, I gotta say. I, it seems like it's a very, very important thing to Keith's family that they bring his body home. So I hope eventually they get well, the answers they they're did, searching they for. They did show at the end of the uh, documentary that his mom was still going out. Quite frequently putting flowers out there. At the moor, yeah. And she's breaking down every time she's out there because, you know, she wants to bring her baby home and put him, to, she, put him to proper rest. Yeah, she knows he's out there somewhere and just where. The thing that got me, though, is most of the mothers, and for some reason only the mothers were interviewed in this documentary. Yeah, no, I, I, none of the I other family was. The fathers. Or even any of the siblings or anything. But when I researched it more, they, there's a lot of family that was left out of this. Evidently, they just wanted to focus on the mothers, which is fine if that's what the documentary wanted to do. But that there's a, a lot of their family members involved as well. Well, not only that, but, usually the mothers are the ones that take it the worst. The thing is, though, that most of the mothers had seemed like they coped with the loss. Not that they don't still miss and love their babies. They do greatly. Right. But they're dealing with it in their own way. And they're able to move on with life. And still remember. Lovingly remember their children without it affecting them heavily. Well I know Except the one mom. One. I was like the one mom she had to take meds to sleep. Yes. Leslie's mom. Is the one who said she was on something like 11 different prescriptions. Just to cope throughout the day. And to be able to sleep and. The thing that gets me with that is Leslie's mom is the one who was played the tape of her daughter being tortured and murdered. 
She was the one that was taken out to the moor and shown where her daughter was buried and shown her daughter's partially decomposing body. And I can only imagine as a mother, knowing your child was killed and killed in such a horrible way is bad enough. But to see and hear her murder and the after effects of it and to see where she was so brutally buried and her decomposed... I, that has to, in my mind, be the reason why she is so much worse off than the other mothers. Yes, the other mothers w had to identify clothing. Right, but she, they didn't but identify you can the separate, body. Yes, you can separate the clothing from the person if you need to in your mind. But to see your daughter's body decomposing like that, because she, if you remember, she's the one who said she just wept over her body and she didn't want to let him go, yep. let her go. And they had to pry her off of her daughter's decomposing body because obviously they had to take her. Yeah. So that's, that had to, as far as I'm concerned, that has to be probably the worst thing police could ever do in a situation like that. I'm not, these police seemed like they were excellent people and maybe that was their only thought at the time of, we just have to figure, make sure that this is who it is so we can prosecute these people. And again, this was back in the 1960s. Maybe they did not yet realize what toll it was going to take on her mother to see this. Right. So I'm not saying anything bad about the police as far as who they are. They, in the documentary, they seem like genuinely caring, awesome individuals this was just a very bad decision that they made. Yeah, a really, really bad decision. They, they could, could have done it better. Anyways, that is the end of a very, very rough episode. It was hard to watch. Yeah, it was. It was really rough. If you choose to get on and watch it, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called The More Murders. Um, again, there's another... There's a... Uh, movie made about it that is kind of just like a retelling um of everything that happened i don't believe it i don't believe it could be 100 percent accurate but it's out there we haven't watched it yet there is a book about it out there somewhere we just gotta find that information out which one it is or yes. what it's called um also if you just google it there's a lot of information and pictures and stuff that come up um, thankfully I didn't see any pictures come up of the bodies, anything like that. They just Thank have God. like the areas of where they were buried, um, pictures of the police out searching pictures of the victims beforehand. And I will post, like I said, I'll post that picture that they had of Henley out on the moor where they were able to find one of the graves. I'll post some pictures of the victims. I'll post the mug shots, stuff like that. So if you want to get on and look at those, um, we're Depraved Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find us either place. Um, we have a Twitter, but we don't really use it just because neither of us are a huge fan of Twitter. If y'all are a huge fan of Twitter and want us to start using it more, give us a shout out and let us know. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can message us on Facebook. We'll see it there. You can send us a Gmail at podcastdepraved at gmail.com. Um, and you guys, we're trying to get the word out about our podcast. So if you hear of anyone who may be interested in something like this or whatever, just let them know. Please give, give the word out. Word of mouth always works better than anything I've always found out. Yep. Share us far and wide. So anyways, we will leave it at that. 
and we will be back by next week with a new episode for you. And normally we use a phrase at the end, and this time it really fits. You never know what's lurking in your neighborhood. <laughs>